This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Probably no tails, no tucks and tails. <laughs> oh, wow, I thought you meant something else. <laughs> <laughs> Have I had Fireball? I'm a millennial. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we open the listener mailbag to answer your questions about interviews, motivation, and more. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 126. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And I'm Susanna Harris. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Always mixing it up, Josh. New year, time to change things. New year, new voice. I mean, who's not <laughs> tired of hearing us just talk all the time? I know I am. Today in the studio, we have Susanna Harris, who I think people will remember from, we did a few episodes, I think, with you, mm -hmm. Susanna. Mm -hmm. One on your pets. How are they? They are doing great. They are home sleeping right now. It's fantastic. No disgusting <laughs> happening since then? No, I actually, they've been, they've been pretty good. They've eaten a couple of things, but otherwise, you know. They're dogs. They're dogs. They're dogs. Susanna, I actually did some research, and this is your fourth time on the show. Wow. Is that possible? I thought it was three, but it's actually four. I've only been on six times, Josh. Well, you are quickly catching up to Emily <laughs> Roberts. So, Oh, I actually just talked with her a month ago. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah she's awesome. Gets to be a very small world. Uh, Susanna is a senior grad student at the University of North Carolina and founder of PhD Balance, a movement that has built a community and a sense of empowerment for thousands of graduate students across the world. That is... Uh, I think you'll remember our episode, was it 93, on grad school mental health crisis? That was one where you kind of laid out some of the the mental health issues facing graduate students. And I think PhD Balance is, is trying to help solve some of those or bring some light to that. Is that right? Yeah, our, our big mission from the start that's really kind of come along with us throughout all these different iterations is that the stigma around mental illness and even just talking about general struggles in grad school, that's what holds a lot of people back and keeps them from progressing or even enjoying their graduate school experience. I know it kept me from enjoying a lot of my graduate school experience. You could have used a community like PhD Balance. I, could, I tried to have one with you and a few Actually, other did, grad yeah. students. Yeah. You called it the Quarter Life Crisis Support Network. I think PhD I Balance is a better... Her branding mm -hmm. is, is better than my branding. Yes, that is true. Well, actually, Stan, I wanted to ask you... If it's okay, yeah. I know when we first had you on the show to talk about this community, when it was in its early stages, it was PH depression, and you've undergone a little bit of a, a naming change and a branding switch. Tell us a little bit about sort of the thought behind that. I was probably the last person to sign off on changing the name because, I, I mean, it was kind of my baby. It was something that I really loved, and, you know, I liked the fact that depression was in the name. It's right there. You know, we're not trying to hide it. We're not trying to sugarcoat it. Uh, but we kept getting these same responses from people, which were, one, I don't have depression. I'm dealing with something else. Can I still talk here? Am I still, you know, allowed here? Uh, we had people who said, you know, I wouldn't consider myself depressed, just some of the symptoms. We didn't want to exclude people. And then what you'll hear maybe even on other podcasts is that it's very hard for people to say the name unless they had heard people say it before. So pH depression turned into a whole bunch of different versions. So oh, I see just from the, the pure dynamic of speaking the phrase, depression is a descriptive word and it is a meaningful word. And I think you're totally right that we should talk about it. 
Um, when I was in graduate school, looking back, I was certainly depressed. I don't know that I could have told you that at the time. So I love the idea of, of reband. I would have I would have embraced balance, and in a way that maybe I couldn't have embraced depression. So I I like what you're doing with that, and maybe people will come to understand where they are uh, as as time goes by. You know, I was having a conversation with someone just this week about that, Dan, because you know I finally was diagnosed with depression after graduate school, but it's very obvious now that that's what I was dealing with. But even though it wasn't that long ago when we were in grad school, I mean, this was the mid-2000s, it wasn't really in the vernacular that much. It wasn't in the sort of the forefront of the experience of being a graduate student. I think now we're very aware that this is something graduate students are facing. Well, we were Mental facing health it is it something you should think about as a graduate student. Yeah, but mm-hmm. do you ever remember hearing anything when we were graduate students about depression, anxiety, mental health, not achieving a, balance? Not a single time that mm-hmm. I can think of. But we are so glad you're here. And you're here because we get lots of emails and letters and no letters. We get emails and tweets <laughs> and some postage. <laughs> okay, boomer. Stamps.com. That's all right. Uh, we, we get emails and tweets and Facebook posts and people ask us questions and you are here because we thought you'd be a great uh, voice to have in the room. Somebody who is finishing up graduate school mm-hmm. uh, toward the end of that process and we just wanted to have that additional voice. So, Let's talk about the ethanol that's in front of us, Josh, before we get to those mailbag questions. That's right. We do have some ethanol. Yes, this is why why I came. You know, you just explained why you invited me, but this is why I'm here. Free beer. Mm-hmm. Although not it's not beer. beer. It's not <laughs> beer. <laughs> All right. So, Dan, this week we have a treat. We are drinking the off-main semi-dry cider from Bull City Cider Works here in Durham, North Carolina. Now, Susanna, you've been to Bull City Cider Works, I believe? Yeah. Do you have the the little weird backstory about how this is tied into UNC? I do. Yes, of course course he does. But uh, why don't you tell it? Okay. Well, you're going to have to tell me if I'm wrong with any of it. But one of the co-founders was actually a UNC graduate student. So he worked up uh, in the Northeast and... Uh, he had a really great pet pedigree coming in, started a PhD, got into a fantastic lab and worked with the professor so he could take a year off because he and his friend had this idea that maybe they could start a cider, a cider works or a cider business. Uh, cidery? A cidery? Guess. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. I don't know. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and everyone said, okay, that's cool. Go take a year off, whatever you need to do. And then he, it just took off. It he never he, came back. He never came back. Was he a microbiology student? Mm-hmm. You know, I remember this. It seems like the right choice if you're going to. Yeah, I remember this guy really well because, so I've, I've been in my role um, in admissions for quite some time. 200 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember this particular student when he was interviewing because he sought me out and we had this really extensive conversation about the beer scene here in central North Carolina. And it struck me because he was not from here, how much he knew about each and every brewery here. And I was like, Oh, this guy's like really cool guy. Uh, But yeah, he ended up leaving grad school and becoming a successful businessman. Yeah. And now we are drinking his cider on the show. It all ties back. I I like, I thank you for getting a a drier cider because I don't know that I could have handled a Sugar bomb. Yes, what do you think of this one? What do you think? I think it's refreshing. It's delicious. I don't tend to be a cider person, but you're right. I like the drier. The dry, and they actually have a lot of really interesting ciders at Bull City. They have a hot yeah. cider, Dan. You probably like that. So a cider works is a place that you go and they have taps of mm-hmm. many ciders. Is that the idea? I haven't been. Many. It's- 
basically like a brewery. They allow dogs inside, so I go there a couple times a year. Uh, and I love it. I think my favorite, they have one that's cherry tart that's a little bit more uh, sweet, but they have one that's a ginger. It's called Rise Up. Oh, that's a good one. It's really good. Oh, that good. does sound good. So ginger they do, and apple? Yeah, they do a bunch of mixing, so it's great. The people I know that really love the cider scene are the, my gluten-free friends. Mm. And this actually says, Dan, the marketing speak is for the off-main that we're drinking tonight. Not another mainstream cider. Our off-main hard cider is the perfect blend of local apples, gluten-free yeast, and amazing, refreshingly crisp, easy-drinking cider. No bull. I'm glad the yeast are gluten-free. Gluten-free? That's great. Good for them. <laughs> Do I have glutinous yeast? <laughs> is that a danger that we are <laughs> facing? But, Dan, this doesn't end there. My wife was in downtown Durham the other night enjoying some off-main Bull City cider with her friends when it was recommended to her to kick it up a notch by adding some... Fireball two, what do you have? Cider. And you, you have three tiny bottles of <laughs> Fireball. We're not going to each drink a bottle of Fireball. But no, we don't have to. Just have a bunch. So, what I thought is oh, you could I try. See. We're going to make our own concoction by adulterating this. Remind cider, me what Fireball is. It is a. Would you like to taste the Fireball first? It's a cinnamon flavor. Then, have you had Fireball? Yeah, isn't it whiskey technically? Is it whiskey? Yeah. Yeah. Have I had a fireball? I'm a millennial. <laughs> Am I supposed to pour some in? Boomer? Yeah, it's pretty good. Here, Dan, look. <laughs> this is the second time I call we're, we're on a theme tonight. I've got my Durham Distillery. Okay, this is just a one ounce, all right? all right? We're just going to see if this makes it better or worse. It totally makes it better. Sorry if the owner of Bull City Ciderworks is listening to this. Nah, they do a mix cringing. that's like their cinnamon one with off main. So These are really <laughs> tiny bottles of fireball. Where did you find them? Well, I wasn't going to buy a big bottle. Uh, you'll be glad to know this is like 97 cents worth of Fireball. That, that does not actually make me feel better, it turns out. <laughs> okay, there you go. All right, well, cheers once again. All right, better, worse, or same? Meh. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think it helps. Minimal, it. yeah, sort of. I can smell it more than I can taste it. Yeah, I expected more. Okay, well, let's add three or four more bottles and we'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> All right, we should probably move on. Let's move on. Ethanol section, we will nurse these over the course of the podcast. Want to remind everybody about uh, our sponsors, Promega. They have... Uh, a lot of help for students and scientists at their student resource center. You go to promega.com slash hellophd to check it out. They've got information on all the techniques that you use in the lab. If you're training a student, which I assume some of you are doing now that the holidays are over and you're back in the lab, probably picking up some new undergrads, teach them about cell culture, reporter assays, all types of PCR. Once again, that's promega.com slash hellophd. And thank you to all of our patrons who support us on patreon.com. All right, well, let's jump into our listener mailbag. All right, Dan, so we have a lot of questions. Let's just jump right into these. But why don't we start with one that's related to admissions? So we actually replayed our admissions episode last week because I know a lot of our listeners are in the middle of admissions season right now. So we have a couple questions related to that. Our first email comes from Wayman, who is applying to PhD programs. So they have a situation they would like some help. I worked in an academic lab as a lab technician for eight months after I graduated from college. I left that lab for another job. I left it in very organized and on good terms. At least I thought I did. During that time in the lab, I co-authored two papers and also worked on one that's about to be published. Before I left, the PI told me that I can ask him for help when I'm applying to graduate school. I assumed he meant writing me a good recommendation letter. So, so far, so good. Sounds great. Papers. Re research, papers, and you got a letter of recommendation coming. That's what we want here. 
Fast forward eight months later, I'm in the process of applying to graduate schools now, and I sent the PI two emails about recommendation letters. I have not heard back from him. I communicated with the postdoc, whom I work closely with about the situation. She mentioned my first email to the PI and told her he saw it, but was too busy. I followed up a week later with another email, knowing he already saw my first one. I still have not been able to get a hold of him. I asked around and learned that this PI did not write his graduate student recommendation letters when she graduated and was applying for jobs. She mentioned that he is also ignoring her request for a recommendation letter. The postdoc is willing to write me a good recommendation letter if I don't hear back from the PI. I know you mentioned on Podcast 102 that not having a letter of recommendation from the PI looks bad, but what should I do when I can't get a hold of the PI, or maybe he's purposely ghosting me? Should I go with the postdoc's letter and move on with my applications? How do I explain the situation without sounding like I am bad-mouthing the PI if I get asked about this? Please help. That's a rough one. That is tough. I'm just waiting for Josh to tell me, oh, here's the magical solution that takes care of it. Well, I mean, first I'll say the obvious, which is this is a very frustrating... I'm very frustrated. This is one of your pet peeves. Uh, it is, because recommendation letters are extremely important part of a graduate school application, especially letters from someone who's worked directly with you in a research context. And it sounds like, you know, the thing that is is head-scratching here, it sounds like things have gone really well. I mean, co-authorship on paper, even a verbal, you know, a verbal, I'm here to help you out in the future. Um, and then the thought that that someone who's currently in the lab asked the PI about it who said, oh, yeah, I'm who is currently in the lab, who is there in the, in the PI's face every and said, day. Oh, yeah, well, I didn't, no, I didn't do that yet. Didn't write that letter. Yeah. If, the, if there is a, an error on the play here, I think it's, I, I, I feel bad saying this. I feel like it's, it's believing that when the PI said, oh, yeah, I'd love to help you in the future, that that was a specific commitment to do something. Um, and I don't know whether this listener actually, before sending the application, said, would you be willing this week to fill out a letter of recommendation? Maybe there was enough time that, well, and, and then again, maybe the PI would have said yes and not done it. So I, I don't know. I don't know how you prevent this the next time. What do you do about it after it happens? I think we've all had something that has happened sort of similar to this somewhere along the line, uh, whether it's a letter of recommendation that they're purposely not giving you or they're, you know, they're truly extremely busy people. So I, I think my first go-to would be to assume that they're really busy and to do the work for them. So write up your own letter of recommendation. Decide what you would want them to say. Write it up and send it to them with that being the first, you know, the title of it of here is the letter I would like you to send. And a lot of people are truly that busy, they'll be happy to tweak it a bit and, and send it in and feel like they've really done something. If they don't want to write you a letter, whether it's their own sort of whatever reason they're doing it, if they don't want to write you a letter because they didn't think you did a good job, you don't want that letter anyway. If they don't want to write a letter because they hate writing letters, you might not want that letter anyway. Uh, so I Could would do just, more harm than good if it's... Not a great letter. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I do think that letters of recommendation are one of the things that we should, as graduate students, be able to rely on, but it's absolutely not true. That so it sounds like from your from your game perspective, you send the pre-written letter and the hope that the person just tweaks it and sends it and it comes from them. Um, the backup plan may be the postdoc. You ask the postdoc to do it just so that it, something comes from that rotation. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I think I think one possibility that they could help because actually it actually is true, unfortunately, that a letter from a lab head from a PI does carry more weight than a letter from a senior grad student or a postdoc, even if that 
in reality, that postdoc or senior grad student was the one who worked most closely. It's something you would have to explain with if it was the, the postdoc, is that right? Well, well, something, though, that, that can happen, a good middle ground, and this happens sometimes with PIs who have a lot of administrative responsibilities or are very busy, the postdoc could write the letter, uh, because the postdoc may have more direct experience with the, the applicant, but then get it co-signed by the PI. And that way, the PI has very little work to do, similar to what Suzanne was suggesting, where you know women writes, writes their own letter. But in this case, it sounds like the postdoc's willing to write a letter. Uh, they could write the letter, but I think it would be important, if possible, to at least get a co-signature uh, by the PI. I remember you don't love students writing their own, but I think that's because you think that's the PI's responsibility and it's not fair. Yeah, I mean, I, I have worked with students who've had PIs that actually suggested directly that the applicant writes their first draft. And that puts a lot of pressure. I mean, I don't like it. Students it don't feels, like it, to do it, that. It just feels hard to me. It, feel, it would be difficult unless you're a narcissistic sociopath to pen your own praise. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be difficult. Well, and I agree with what Susanna said. I mean, that's part of the job if you're going to be involved in academic training is yeah. writing letters for your people. Like what I've what I've done when I've had to do this um, in the past, and it was it wasn't told that I had to, but they basically said if you do this, it will make my job a lot easier. And so mm-hmm. what I ended up doing is writing up the things that I would want them to put in it, and then giving it to a friend who was also in microbiology. I think mm-hmm. it was actually the grad student I was working with. It was when I was an undergrad, um, and and asked them to write it because you know they like me, they understand the field, they know my resume, and they can write it up in a way that would make me feel really cringy, but could come from an, an actual outside perspective. And they may need the same from you when their PI doesn't write them a letter. Mm-hmm. But you know, it is absolutely true though that a weak letter is worse than no letter. So, mm. you know, anytime, just to reiterate this advice, anytime you're asking anyone for a letter, I think what you want to ask is, can you write me a strong letter? Because if the answer to that is no, uh, you would be better off just to, to look elsewhere to find a letter. But sounds like that may not be what's going on here. Well, and there's there's one other part with that that I thought was really interesting of, of how to bring it up without sounding like you're bad, bad-mouthing someone. Oh, in your actual interview or if, if somebody asks or you. Or in your application, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, again, I would, um, you know, it's unfortunate that that's how this works right now, but, you know, don't don't say things that are bad-mouthing without having really, really strong evidence. You know, if, if it's true evidence that something has happened and it's going to be useful to explain, then that's one thing. But you don't really know exactly what's happening. You don't know what other people see. You don't know what's going on in this person's mind. Um, and so just give them the benefit of the doubt and say, this is someone who's really busy and it the connections weren't working and we thought it would be better if the postdoc wrote it and X, Y, Z. Well, and you know, depending on the relationship with the postdoc, it sounds like there's a good communication, uh, good line of communication with the postdoc. I mean, this is some. These letters are confidential. It's not like the PI is going to then read the letter the postdoc writes. The postdoc could be a great third-party person to say, "Hey, you know, I'm not the lab head, but here's a reason why I'm actually providing this letter. I know this mm-hmm. person very well, and they reached out to the PI, but because of these reasons that are not at all the fault of of women, this so, is why." So I'm the admissions this committee will. Kind and the admissions of committee would piece absolutely, the pieces together. Exactly, exactly, and they'd be very sympathetic to mm-hmm. that situation. Mm-hmm. Probably not the first time they've seen it. Exactly. (laughs) That's my guess. All right. Well, related to applications with the next step, interviews. So this was an email that we received from Lisa. And I have to say, Dan, we have never received an email 
um, like this on this topic before. Nor are we less qualified to answer it. Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Lisa said, good afternoon. Thanks so much for the wonderful podcast. I have received my first interview invitations for biomedical umbrella programs, and I realize I don't know what I should wear to these events. I realize some of the activities during an interview weekend are more informal, but how formally should I be dressed for the faculty interviews? I have attached a picture. Is this appropriate, or should I be in more formal business attire? Thanks so much, Lisa. P.S. This picture is of my lab mate, Sarah. We are both applying for the first time in this cycle. I'm assuming Lisa got Sarah's permission to send us this photo. And I would say this is, I can't tell if it's jeans or not. Is it jeans? I think it's jeans. I think it's jeans. Jeans and a sweater. Mm -hmm. Looks like jeans, a sweater, maybe some brown shoes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what do you wear at interviews? This is a question that I actually get a lot from applicants. And I always laugh because I think I am the worst person to ask because I have minimized my wardrobe to the point that I almost wear the same thing, whether I'm going to um, a wedding or to a concert or to, I have, I kind of wear the same thing all the time, so I'm not the good a good person to ask. Susanna, what do you think? What do you think about DNA Day T-shirt? DNA Day, DNA Day T-shirt. <laughs> what Josh is wearing right now, yeah. 24/7. This I I read this question before the uh, the podcast, um, and I definitely could have flashbacks to five years ago when I was doing this. Um, I wore the same exact outfit to every single interview. I think I went on five different interviews. And it's funny because uh, there were two specifically that I did up in Boston where one of them I was slightly underdressed in this outfit. And the next one I was very overdressed. Based on the other applicants. It's the same... Mm -hmm. The same outfit, same outfit, different like same city. So there is no answer. You know, I would say wear what you think is professional. You know, decide what does it look like to be professional in this career. Now, that's not going to be what are you comfy in? What are you going to wear to lab every day? I mean, I wear sweatpants all the time. Definitely don't wear that to an interview. Um, But you know, what does professional look like for you? Well, I was just thinking there. it, It feels like the person who wrote is asking about specific periods of the interview. So mm. I'm, is it a two-day process, one and a half day? Usually yeah. there's a, a first day where it's very more formal introduction. You have faculty interviews, you have uh, events. And I feel like the second day where people, you know, you go out that night maybe, and then the second day people kind of straggle out of bed, take a tour of the campus, and then get on an airplane. And so I feel like whatever you put on that first day has to last you for... a the full, you know, from breakfast until 11 p.m. I think you're right. I think there are usually two kind of genres of events, right? There's the main day where you have, and I think that's what Lisa was asking about, when I'm actually going to the faculty offices, doing the one-on-one interviews. I think Suzanne is exactly right. You want to think about what, you know, I think what makes you feel confident Mm -hmm. and what is maybe... Uh, what does professional mean to you? I think that's a great way to mention it. And that might look different for different people. Mm -hmm. You know, we... We see lots of people interviewing and we see some show up in suits and we see others show up in button down shirt and slacks and neither is right. Neither is wrong. I think you could probably go too far in either direction. I mean, Mm -hmm. one thing that's nice about science, it is probably less formal than if you're applying for a business position. I was going to say suits sounded, sounded a little too far to me, but maybe there are schools where that's the norm. So the fanciest one I went to, they... There were people Care in to suits. name names or no? <laughs> no it feels weird. <laughs> um, it's actually funny because the one I'm talking about right now, I'm going to go get to visit pretty soon uh, to, to do talks at. So I'm like, oh, you God. You tell us later when we start recording. Yeah. I'm like, well, what am I going to wear? Am I going to be fancy enough? I don't know. So 
for what I've seen, suits seem to be a little bit far. Uh, I felt that way when the sales reps would come around with suits. Yeah. I mean, you, you immediately recognize they don't belong here. Yeah. But, but in an interview, I think you're right. I've seen people more formally dressed. You know, we had a faculty... Probably no tails, no tucks and tails. <laughs> oh, wow. I thought you meant something else. <laughs> <laughs> what else? I'm transitioning to be a cat. Some people do that. I remember in grad school, to change the topic, we had a faculty candidate in the microbiology department, and we had three people come through, but one guy had a business background, and he came in right. full suit. Yeah. And... We all were skeptical because of that's him. what we thought he was trying to sell to us something. Yeah, during his talk, and you know, I think it backfired. You know, I think sometimes maybe one notch above what your sort of normal day to day. Well, I don't know. Maybe I would that's call not it good business advice. casual. It, I would say yeah. dress like a grown up at work. But you know, I did want to say, you know, to the other part of what she was asking about is, you know, some of the activities seem more informal. You know, I absolutely think probably most interview experiences. Maybe there's the informal dinner with the grad students, or you know, breakfast the next morning. Something a little more casual is probably fine there. Jeans and a nice shirt or whatever. Yeah, I would I would go as far as jeans. I probably wouldn't go farther than that. I wouldn't I wouldn't put on your sweatpants even for the the day Shorts, after. No. Yeah, nothing no. with holes in it. Yeah, I think the TLDR version of this is like full suit, maybe a little too much. Jeans, it really depends on where you're going. If you're like jeans are the most dressed up I ever want to be, there are schools that are cool with that mm, and yeah. it's a good way to filter it out. Uh, I think that the only thing that's going to make you look really bad is if you wear something that you cannot move in. So mm, yes, high heels, you. if yeah. it's cold and you are freezing to death, all that says is that you were not prepared. It's one thing to like have a different you know, sense of style. It's another thing to walk in and have everyone say, where did you think you were interviewing today? Yeah, wear comfortable shoes is absolutely key. Probably anywhere. I mean, there's a lot of walking probably everywhere. We actually say that to applicants who interview mm-hmm. because we've had too many instances where by late afternoon, there are applicants walking barefoot across campus in mm-hmm. February, by the way, mm-hmm. carrying their shoes because their feet are raw. Yeah. The only way you look really bad is that if you're clearly just not prepared for the day. The other thing about transitioning from day to night, which feels very cosmopolitan or something, or Teen Vogue, uh, but the thing to keep in mind is that everyone you're going to be with is in the same situation. That's true. Right? So every, it's not as though you're going to two totally separate events. The people who are interviewing all day are going to be the ones who are going to the evening event. So for my grad interviews, I wore, I think, black slacks, and I had two different shirts, and I brought a pair of jeans, which was for the plane. And if I had time to go back to the hotel room, I'd switch in the jeans for the night, and if I didn't, black slacks are fine. So, so to put a point on it, uh, so Lisa, the photo she sent in, I think this might be this outfit might be good for the informal parts, but maybe one one step up for the interviews. Yeah, I would just I would avoid jeans. I mean, it's it's outdated this idea of like what jeans mean and whatever. But a lot of the people you're going to be interviewing with uh, have a different point of reference. And you don't want to be self conscious about what you're wearing when mm-hmm. you're trying to to focus on your interview. All right. Well, great. I'm glad that we had an assist on, I on think this we, question. I think we've got to get people to send pictures of interview weekend, and we'll do like a style section where we critique everything. <laughs> Is that a Project Runway? No? <laughs> That'd be really good for their mental health. Fully Can't qualified? Wait. No. All right. So this is Shifting Gears. Jessica writes, I am a senior undergraduate student and will be applying to graduate programs this fall. During the 2016 summer, I was conducting research in Australia and had a traumatic life event that led to a decline in my mental health and later my sudden withdrawal from the university in March 2017. It is very evident on my transcripts that I had a rough period in my life in the spring 2017 semester due to withdrawals and Fs received. 
I've taken two and a half year hiatus from school and will just now be returning to my senior year this fall. I'm concerned that because of my departure, I will not be seen as a competitive and serious candidate. My sudden drop from the university has also harmed my prior connections with professors and research advisors that could have written my letters of recommendation, but are unable now because I dropped contact with everyone in my major and research group that knew about what happened to me. My main question is, how do you frame personal and difficult life experiences when asked about them in interviews and applications? I know that I am driven, tenacious, and ready to pursue a graduate degree, but unsure how to frame my past experience to my advantage. I'm also unsure of how to anticipate others' reactions if I do speak candidly. I know that I have an empowering story, but I'm finding it hard to balance oversharing and not being detailed enough. I don't want to seem like I am flaky or give up when facing a challenge, which is how it currently appears in my transcript. I would be interested in hearing from graduate students with similar experiences of taking a mental health break from university life and later returning. Um, This one really hit me because there's so much here. Life events happen Mm -hmm. and not everybody comes back from them and not everybody tries to come back to school. But I think what the person is talking about is I've learned from this. I've grown. I understand my new path in the context of what happened, whatever that happened to be. But if I gloss over it and don't get too deep, which is mostly what people will probably want from me, then they're going to say they won't understand what a serious event it was. But if I overshare, then they might get turned off. So the question is, how do I, how do I incorporate this narrative of what happened to me into my career and, and convince people that I'm ready for this? I would say most people don't want to be uncomfortable in an interview section, including the interviewer, right? So they're hope. I mean, if they dig into these questions really hard, like that's a concern anyway. But if you say something that I had a traumatic life experience and it caused me to lose these sort of connections and it took me a long time to rebuild them. And what I've learned from this situation is X, Y, Z. That person is really not going to want to go back and dig into what is a traumatic life experience, nor should they. Uh, And I think that, like you were saying, a lot of people don't come back to school. A lot of people don't come back from these situations and decide, actually, not am I just going to finish, but I'm going to keep going. That's a really big deal. And to just be able to frame it in terms of not necessarily what the event is, but what you've learned from it and how you have shown that even with things, you you still refine that passion. Things in grad school aren't going to derail you. You might kind of have to take a step to the side, that you, but you know how that works and you know how to get back on to that situation. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And and really there's been a movement, at least in science graduate program admissions, where even there's data that shows that some of these, you know, these life skills, these factors that Jessica has probably built through learning to be resilient through these challenging experiences and get back up and, and come back to school, these are the very life skills that are going to be most helpful in a research-based graduate program where failure is absolutely going to happen on a daily and weekly basis. And, and you know, really even the, the research shows that it's things like that that are better predictors of success than what GPA you had when you happen to come into graduate school. So, you know, the personal statement is a great place to try to explain some of your situations. I mean, I think you don't necessarily have to go into detail, but, you know, if you do have some discrepancies on your transcript, you absolutely should address those in your statement, even without getting into details you don't want to share. But, you know, I think you can really spin that into a positive of here's what I learned from that and here's how this is going to help me in the future. Yeah. And and it's very true, right? It's not even... 
you're not making something up. You've really learned from this. And I think I just love how this was phrased as a traumatic life event. That is not something anyone should dig into and should should doubt, right? And if they do, that's a, that's not a good thing. Uh, and so phrasing it like that and exactly just highlighting the pieces that you have grown from because I'm sure that you have. Yeah, the, the transcript is evidence that it was traumatic, right? The, the transcript shows that this was a serious thing in this person's life. And I think, Josh, we've talked about before, the ability to show, yes, my GPA was terrible. It was devastated in this semester or two semesters or a year, or I took this time off. But I've been able to come back and demonstrate that I'm able to achieve whatever grades uh, I need to get into this program. Showing that recovery period in your transcript, I think, is is valuable, as opposed to, I was just consistently kind of mediocre or whatever it is. <laughs> so I, I think there is um, a path forward here. And I really like what you said, Susanna, about describing it as this was an event in my life and giving the the interviewer a chance to not probe, to, to hear the outcome of, of your life event and that you learned from it. But I think they are also going to be happy not to have to, you know, they're not your therapist. They don't necessarily want to enter the depths of the trauma that you experienced. And so you're giving them an opportunity to say, okay, I understand that this had an impact and now it seems to be better and you're more resilient for it. All right. Now I think we're shifting gears a little bit into challenges during the PhD. Absolutely. This one came in over Twitter from Katie. How do you let go of your proposed PhD plan and breathe life and love into wherever it's going now, which feels like you're scraping up the dirt on the floor and mushing it into the vague resemblance of a thesis. Does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) Hey, everybody. This is Future Josh, and I am breaking in because we have quite a few more listener emails and tweets to respond to with Susanna, and we kept going for a little while. So we are going to end this episode here. And then if you want to hear the answer to this question about letting go of PhD plans, we will talk about it on the next show. In addition to some other topics, everything from keeping electronic lab notebooks to how to stay motivated during a motivational slump, which is, I know, something we can all relate to during our graduate training. So if you want to um, hear some more responses to listener questions from Dan and myself and our special guest, Susanna Harris, we will be back at you with more of those in our next episode. If you have additional questions or topic ideas, we would love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or you can leave a message on our Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money. Thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. It was a blast to have Susanna on this week, and we will look forward to hearing more from her and Dan and myself on the next show. 